0: My name's Bernie Hobbs. I'm going to be hosting this session, which is being recorded for broadcasts on Radio National's Big Ideas. And uh, like all of the Planet Talk sessions, we've got a, uh, a robust and, uh, in this case, quite shy panel here for you this afternoon uh, to really delve into um, to the issue that we're concerned about. Uh, health and climate change. But what we really want to get to as well are are your questions. So when it comes time for questions, please don't hold back at all. We want to hear from you. We'll have microphones going around and, uh, and we'll get to that in not too long at all. So our session is, can human beings be well when the planet is sick? We hear a lot about climate change. We hear a lot about the causes, the threats, the possible effects. But Health isn't one of the things that's generally at the forefront of the discussions that follow. But what is the health side of climate change? What will climate change mean to our health and well-being? What health impacts should we expect? And hopefully, as well as those this afternoon, we'll get to uh, some of what we can do about it. And my very esteemed, introverted panel this afternoon begins on my far left with Dr Paul Willis, these days Adelaide Local, Director... of RI former reporter on ABC TV's Catalyst, and uh, you need one of these on every health and climate change panel, Fossil crocodile expert. Uh, so um, welcome, Paul. Next to Paul is the equally introverted, shy, retiring herself to herself, Emily Johnston. Um, Emily's doing a PhD at Uni of South Australia in mosquitoes and public health. In that research group, she's the co-founder of Science in the Pub in in Adelaide. And uh, as well as you know being very much interested in in the disease side of climate change impact, she's got her own personal project looking into population uh, impacts just in life in general. Um, Emily is about 10 and a half months pregnant, for those listening at home. Um, I think she's finally you know, come to terms with the fact, appearing as she does in a midriff top with The Globe. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a Michaelis projection she's got painted on there, but it's, a, it's something. So uh, out and proud and contributing to the population problem, one junior Emily at a time. Um, and I do have to... Uh, you will have noticed by now that sitting on my immediate left is not Professor Fiona Stanley. Um, unfortunately, Fiona sends her greatest apologies. She's unable to be here um, due to a health issue in her family. But we are absolutely delighted to have in her stead Dr Ingo Weber. Um, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> um Ingo's an anaesthetist here in Adelaide. Uh, he's a former GP and also former South Australian Chair of Doctors for the Environment. So very much interested in the topic at hand and speaks widely on the topic of climate change and health around the nation. So let's get started with getting a very clear picture of what it is that we're going to be talking about. And, Paul, with the work that you've been doing at RIOS, you've, you've put a lot of work into mapping out um, what the science is telling us we can expect to see through this century. So, can you just paint us... I'm sure it won't be a happy picture, but a clear picture of what we can expect from climate change this year? Uh, yeah, this year? This century. Year, uh, this century.
1: <laughs> That's a little specific, but... Um, uh, it's it's not a pretty picture, you're right. Uh, when you take in uh, the phenomena of climate change, but also population growth across the planet, they provide three factors that are just begging for uh, a pen- pandemic of some disease or many diseases. Firstly, we're going to see a lot of people on the move. Uh, Some of the projections are that by the middle of this century we could have 3 billion people moving around the planet because they're climate refugees. There's no water for them where they live, there's no food for them where they live, so they'll be moving. Uh, We could be seeing 50 million people turning up in boats in Australia, so, you know, that's a, a... mass movement of people is one problem. Most of those people will be undernourished, which means that their immune systems will not be top-notch, so that that's another factor that will mean it'll be easy for diseases to get around. And the third factor is that because we are pushing on the last remaining natural resources of the planet, we're coming into contact with uh, animals, and we're living with, uh, with species that we haven't lived with in the past. So we're picking up diseases from them, which we have no immunity for. And so you pull those three together, and you really don't have a very pretty picture. Sooner or later, and it's going to be sooner rather than later, there will be a pandemic. There will probably be several of them, and nowhere will be safe.
0: Yeah, no, not happy. Not a happy story at all. But um, It's
1: always good to start on a positive <laughs> note, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, that's that's what the science... Yeah, we can only go up from here. That's what the science is telling us now. Um, we'll We'll take a look at some of those infectious diseases and diseases from animals, which is your area, Emily. We'll take a bit of a look at that down the track. But, Ingo, I'd like to come to you and, you know, look at this question... I guess of the interconnectedness of us as as humans and our the health of our environment. Can we as human beings be healthy when our environment is not?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a good question, and I'm going to be very depressing as well on this. Um, the sick is a very human term that we use, and if I can just maybe extrapolate and take that one step further, and um, and say, well, what if 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 I take the planet Earth as your body, um, and um, Which what seems a
0: little bit Actually, crazy l- when there's a planet Earth body sitting right there beside you.
2: She has the global perspective. But anyway... Well, I hope, I hope she's not that sick, you see. so, <laughs> <laughs> But if, you, if I take your body as planet Earth, um, what would that mean as me as a doctor? Uh, I would probably have to tell you that your lungs are shot to pieces, um, that your liver and kidneys are packing up, and you've got rising acidity in your blood. I'd probably have to admit you to intensive care unit and and put you in life support. Um, That's pretty much how serious it is. And that's not me saying it, but our medical institutions around the world. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have heard of what the medical institutions are actually in general saying, Um, but they are saying that this is a medical emergency. And it's not just an emergency of, yeah, we gotta do something about it at some stage. This is about, you know, the blue lights, doctors and nurses running around ED like crazy. This is a true emergency. It's billions of lives being threatened, and this is the biggest human health threat. And so we gotta ask ourselves, why are these medical institutions around the world, why are they saying that to us? And here we gotta ask ourselves, what does our health actually depend on? And I'm sure I don't need to push this too hard for you to understand it, it depends on clean air, water, food, uh, shelter as well. And in fact, also what our health depends on is movement, motion. Our body is a machine that needs to move and social interaction. That's what kind of keeps us reasonably happy. And in fact, if I think about it, WOMAD kind of provides this atmosphere quite wonderfully, all the things that we need to stay healthy. We have a lot of movement here. We've got great music and social interaction, good food, clean water. I'm not so sure about the air. Um, Bit dusty and a, a, a bit oh of a yeah yes yeah, yeah and strange smell hanging around sometimes yes. but anyway <laughs> apart from that um, so these are the these are the determinants of health and if we if we look at what our institutions are saying is that all these determinants are going to be affected by climate change um, so it is going to be it's going to be a massive problem as as a result of that now they are all going to be affected by climate change, but also, we are talking about urgency, we have about less than 10 years to get it right. Because if you go below, be above the two degrees, um, we are going to end up in a much warmer world where our ecological systems will collapse and we just will not be able to have the food, the water, the temperature, the weather that we need in order to be able to sustain ourselves. So it is a huge emergency because we have less than 10 years to avoid us from locking into two degrees. That's a massive issue.
0: That is a massive issue. Can you get a little bit more specific? Paul mentioned about um, you know the pandemics and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the risks, I guess, the health um, implications, the direct and indirect things that we're going to be facing. Yeah. Can you?
2: Yeah, so a great way to categorise the health impacts of climate change is into direct and indirect health impacts. And the direct ones, um, you would be already aware of, which is like, you know, fire, storms, floods, um, and all these, and then there are the indirect health impacts, um, such as um, infectious diseases, um, air, water, and the food. So the direct ones, we are going to be experiencing a lot more and more frequently, and Australia will be quite affected by that as well. The indirect ones are more an amplification of already existing issues, um, like I said, water and food shortages is we can talk about a bit more, and another one being, for example, infectious diseases, which is going to be a huge one. Because the little gritters, they love the warmth, for example, they love to replicate and become more aggressive and thereby spread disease. And I've heard that um, about 2,080, up to 2 billion people could be affected by dengue fever alone. So we're looking at a, at a massive problem here.
0: Thanks, and go now, Emily. This is right up your area. The um, the animal-born, yeah, no, <laughs> the uh, vector-born diseases, yep. the mosquito-transmitted <laughs> diseases. Yeah, I know. Sunday afternoon, not the best <laughs> uh, time. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's not gonna... talk about what's up my now, area right now. <laughs> <laughs> let will just cut that for the benefit of radio, Emily. This is very much <clears throat> on topic for you.
3: This is my <laughs> in area. In your uh, area
0: of uh, of research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the mosquito-borne diseases, other yeah. diseases that we, can, um, that we can contract from animals. Tell us a bit about the risks, but also there's a role of biodiversity in all of this, isn't it, that can give us some light, hopefully, amongst all the doom and gloom from Captain and Mr Happy here.
3: Sure. <laughs> Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about uh, what we expect to see with mosquito-borne diseases. So this is an area that we definitely expect to change, but how it's going to change depends on which disease we're talking about. So each mosquito-borne disease has a different ecology, and it's a little easier to predict what we're going to see with the infections that go from a human to a mosquito to another human, um, because there's only really two or you know, the human and the mosquito and then the virus or uh, bacteria that is being transmitted that we have to think about. Um, And that's dengue and malaria are the two big ones there. So malaria, we're expecting to see a shift in where it occurs. So one recent uh, paper said that they're, they're projecting that 370 million people who are currently not exposed to malaria will be exposed in the future. But 330 million people who are currently exposed will no longer be exposed because the environment they live in is going to be too dry or too hot for the mosquitoes to survive. Mm. So we're more likely to see just a shifting of where malaria is occurring. And is that, does that shift include to parts of Australia? Actually, we're not expecting a, um, malaria to spread much into Australia, and that has more to do with where, which vectors or mosquito species are present in Australia. Um, But dengue, we expect to see increasing across the world. And that has a bit to do with climate change, but also to do with the invasion of certain mosquito species that carry that virus. Mm -hmm. So Aedes um, aegypti and Aedes albopictus are spreading their range around the world, partially because certain areas are now receptive or able to breed those mosquitoes because of climate change, Um, but also just the movement of humans and taking those infections around. So those two are a little easier to predict some of the infections uh, that mosquitoes carry are called zoonotic, and that means um, zoo meaning animal, gnosis meaning uh, originating from. So we share those infections with uh, animals. And one example in Australia is Ross River virus. That's our most common mosquito-borne disease. Um, And that's a little harder to say how that'll change because there are 27 species of mosquito that we know can carry the infection. There are over 17 species of animal that can harbor that infection. Um, So figuring out exactly how those Uh, mosquitoes, those animals, and the virus are all going to uh, be altered by changing climate is a little tough to say.
0: It's mad trying to predict all that. I guess there's going to be a lot more information coming as as events unfold, but um, at the moment we're just stuck with modelling and and inconclusive answers. Now, what about the the biodiversity issue? Because I have heard that biodiversity could really be um, a key factor in just how much these
3: uh, events occur. Yeah, so biodiversity is going to be important to human health moving forward. And one of the reasons for that that I'm interested in is called the dilution effect hypothesis. And this. Delusion or dilution? (laughs) Well, hopefully, it's not a delusion. The dilution effect hypothesis. So um, that hypothesis says that as there are a a greater diversity of animals, there's a lower prevalence of infection. And that would be because some of those animals are not going to be good at harboring the pathogen of interest. So this this hypothesis has been supported in a couple different systems. It was started because of Lyme disease in the U.S. and they noticed that in more uh, protected communities and more biodiverse communities, there was a lower prevalence of Lyme disease. Um, It's also been supported with West Nile virus in in the U.S. and uh, hantavirus, too. So that's a good reason for us to try to conserve um, areas. Another one is is because uh, greater biodiversity is nature's medicine cabinet. So we get a lot of our medicines directly from nature. 25% of uh, medicines used in western or pharmaceuticals used in western medicine come directly from plants. So conserving biodiversity actually you know, helps protect us in the future. Is it enough
0: to just conserve biodiversity? Like we keep our medicine in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Is it enough just to conserve biodiversity in hot spots in parts of the world? Or do we need to think of it, um, do we need to reintroduce it to our, our urban environments or, or you know, all over the shop?
3: Yeah, well, we do know that a lot of those um, pharmaceutical uh, medicines come from like tropical rainforests. So 70% of the Plants that we have found to have cancer-fighting properties are found in tropical rainforests, which is one of the areas where we're losing biodiversity uh, the fastest. Mm -hmm. But things like the dilution effect hypothesis has been shown in urban areas and suburban environments. So we definitely want to be protecting biodiversity in in all areas.
2: Right, did you? But we we are actually, need to point out, we are actually losing biodiversity loss as one of the most severe and extreme, um, how should I say, impacts that we're already experiencing. That is one of the red zones of absolute collapse that we're already experiencing. Ocean acidification is not far behind, which is a lot of the species and the the marine life loss, which is another massively important one. And of course, we are burning our rainforests, uh, like nothing else. We are preserving a bit more in Brazil, but we are burning it up like crazy in Indonesia, for example. Sorry, so you they're huge you Sorry we were
0: getting a bit too positive for a moment? Yes, just yeah, I was, to actually. Yeah,
2: <laughs> sounds like oh, if we conserve a little bit here and we do a bit of that and then we should be uh, right. I uh, want it's to turn on
0: every panel from now on just to keep things level. little reality check there. No, <laughs> no I mean, it's critical. I just want to ask you, Emily, you are about to have your first child, hopefully not within the next hour, but um, it's imminent. How does all of this make you feel? How does you know, your own work and what's being said here?
3: Generally, I just I feel bloated right now, a little <laughs> indigestion, <laughs> some constipation. Um, how specific do you want me to get? No, um, we know that uh, the population explosion is one of the most important factors mm. driving climate change and problems that we see around the world. Um, I this is my first child. Um, I'm a strong believer. I wasn't actually
0: having a go at you about population <laughs> there. I was wondering how...
3: Because I think, you know, it is pretty confronting, everything yeah. that's being said about the
0: next 10 years. You're bringing a child into that. How do you feel?
3: Yeah, well, I I, I did want to highlight it is important for us to think about um, keeping the population at a stable level level mm. if we can. So, you know... Two kids per person is about your limit. A couple. Per couple, sorry, mm. is about your limit. And then I think you can adopt. I think that's a good option if you want a big family. But um, but yeah, this is, is, is an important area. And I think about his future and what the world is going to be like for him. Um, I know there are a lot of people—the people here, the panelists—that are really concerned about what we're doing with the environment. So there's a lot of hope there. Um, if I—I I will probably be the only person on the panel that is suggesting there's a lot of hope. But Good. there. Is. Well, we need to hear that for sure. There is, and I have a lot of faith in human ingenuity, and we have, I think, the potential to turn this um, climate change around and to, you know, restore the environment. Yeah. But we do have to start soon and, and yeah. take action. you. No. And while there's pregnant life, there's hope.
0: So uh, <laughs> um, you did raise population and population, there is this question, is there, a, you know, population, is the, the reason that we have such a problem um, with our environment, is there a population level at which um, health would no longer be an issue or, or the kinds of health impacts we're expecting?
1: Paul? The, the, the modelling for a sustainable population on earth at a reasonable Uh, ...standard of living, which would actually be below what most Australians would accept... ...as a reasonable standard of living, is uh, three and a half billion. Right. We're currently seven billion. Mm. And we're on our way to nine billion by the middle of the century. Now, nine billion means another two billion mouths to feed in 35 years. That's going to require an area of arable land, new unused arable land the size of Canada. And that simply doesn't exist.
0: Well, that brings me to another point. Another happy point. (laughs) Well, one, you know, obviously for our health. If we get personal now, we've been looking at, you know, the movement of diseases um, and population health. But if we get down to the personal thing, the things that keep us healthy, the sorts of things you were talking about before, movement, food, engagement. If we focus on food for a moment... most of our food, or the stuff that's good for us anyway, grows as well, and is going to have to exist in this in this changing climate. If we're going to be needing that kind of arable land for the uh, which we don't have, um, for to provide the kind of food that we're used to now, are we looking at drastic changes? in the kind of food that we need to eat or are we able to, going to be able to manage that?
1: And, uh, well, there will be drastic changes, uh, whether we want them or not. You know, uh, the, the choice that we have is, do we want to be proactive and make sensible choices now or will we have them thrust upon us when mm. international trade collapses, we- when international finance collapses, when, and- you know, the Murray-Darling is going to lose between 30 and 50% of its rainfall mm. by the middle of this century. Well, that means its productivity is going to go through the floor. So, yeah. you know, are we going to think now about, well, maybe we should be eating less meat, maybe we should be eating more cereals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or are we going to wait until it's forced upon us?
0: have to say, in Australia, we're great at thinking about the changes we could make. We don't have a great track record in making those changes proactively, but, you know, that's just me. We,
2: we also need to look at the countries where most of the growth is going to occur, and these are going to be the developing countries. It's an interesting story about the developing countries, because on one hand, they're going to ones suffering most from the climate change impacts, having the poorest infrastructure, such as infectious diseases, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, they're the ones least responsible to have caused climate change in the first place. That was us developed nations who put all these greenhouse gases up there, and it is going to the poor developing nations, Africa, South America to some degree, and some of the Asian countries who are going to be suffering the impacts of it. But it goes one step further. Interestingly enough, it is the developing nations that are going to be producing most of the greenhouse gases in the future if we like it or not. And they are the ones who are going to have the largest population growth as well. So it is in our interest, in a sense, to make sure that these countries are being provided with as much renewable energy and technology, what they need to provide for their people. Because number one, it'll reduce greenhouse gases. Number two, it'll bring their population down. When they have energy, they can educate. When they educate, mm. then they, we can get the situation under control. So without looking at those countries, we can do as much as we want here in Australia. We're not going to be budging it. So there is a an international angle to this that our governments need to address as well. And we need to be prepared to, to give away the technology to the poorer nations who so desperately need it. Otherwise, they're going to keep burning coal and fossil fuels until the cows come home, and they're going to push us all over the
1: edge.
0: Oh, as if any nation will keep burning coal and fossil fuels when they know that it's bad for them. <laughs> what would that be? <laughs>
1: um, the, Ingo's point's right. Um, and the problem of, of talking about population is as soon as you say we need to control and re- reduce population... Everybody thinks you're talking eugenics. Everybody thinks who you're going to shoot. Mm. That's actually, uh, as the world wars have demonstrated, actually shooting people is a pretty inefficient way of controlling population. In fact, uh, Corey Bradshaw and um, uh, Barry Brook did uh, some calculations, and they showed that the trajectory of the, the growth of the population at the moment you know, we're going to reach uh, two, uh, 9 billion by the middle of the century, as I said. If you were tomorrow to have the combined casualties of the First and Second World War and the Spanish Flu, so uh, that's uh, about 80 million deaths. If tomorrow you wiped out 80 million people, you would delay getting to 9 billion by about two weeks. So that's not an effective mm. way of doing it. The most effective way to reduce population is to educate girls. Because then... And, and it's not... you know Again, when you say that everyone thinks, well what sex education no give them a practical all-round uh, education so they can become financially and materially depend, uh, independent and then they will not feel uh, the need uh, to have large families they will uh, restrain their you know that actually has been shown mm. to be an effective way to control growth the only problem is it's going to take two generations for that to roll out and i'm not sure that we've got two generations uh, up our sleeve
0: Emily, if you've
3: got something happy, I want to hear it right about now. I, I do. Uh, if we could go back to the food security for a minute. So we know that um, making enough food for this giant population to, um, to feed on Is going to be a problem and so there are some ways that we can go about fixing that. Um, We had a food security and biodiversity science in the pub last month and so I got to learn a bit about this subject and two things that we're doing really well here in South Australia actually are researching how to breed plants and how to genetically modify plants so that they are more productive and there are also people doing good research on how to have better agricultural techniques so that we can increase our yields. So there there is some hope there that we are changing the way um, that we're growing food and so we can have uh, more of it. But we are also going to need to change our practices. And so that's something each individual can do. We can reduce the amount of meat that we eat. You don't have to go vegan and vegetarian, but reducing your amount of meat intake is a really positive thing you can do. And reducing your food waste. So we waste a ton of food around the world. And that's a very easy thing for each of us to take on and to, to fix on our own.
1: Yeah, uh, food waste and also food distribution. Mm. We do grow a lot of food at the moment, which we simply can't use. And we g- also grow the wrong kinds of food for economic reasons. So uh, there is some restructuring there, which would go a long way to uh, feeding the world when we reach 9 billion.
0: I'm glad you brought up the economy. Yeah. And, and
2: I might just say that mine was actually a positive message for once. Oh. Because <laughs> I actually, I did say we can do it. We do have the technology. But we've got to free ourselves up enough to give it to the nations that need it, rather than having this one-track economic system which is built on profit, profit and growth, we need to ask what's going to be beneficial for everyone. So, but but we do have the solutions. We just need to apply them. Yeah, yeah. and that's all part of it.
0: Um, getting on to the economics uh, side of things, because. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, we live in a society, but as they keep reminding us, we also live in an economy, and and um, this this idea of health being a major uh, a major issue around climate change and, and going beyond the malaria and Spanish flu kind of idea. Um, the thing that turned around public perception of climate change in 2007 was the Stern report, when Nicholas Stern came out and spoke about the cost of doing nothing about climate change. Um, Ingo. Is there an, a kind of health or medical equivalent? Like, what's the cost to our health of not doing anything about climate change? Where where are the dollar figures there?
2: Yeah, look, I think that's a really important question you're asking there. And, and as, um, as as doctors and as doctors for the environment, we've been trying to... Um, bring that factor in, what we call externalities, basically. Because it's really great to have this fantastic business plan about a coal mine or a coal-fired power stations and to say, look, it's going to create 200 jobs and that's all fantastic and it's going to make uh, $2 billion, although most of that will probably go overseas. But what about the people living in the areas and the communities exposed to the pollution Um, from coal burning over the next 30 to 40 years. And in fact, they've done some very powerful studies, particularly in America, and they've taken all these externalities, the costs that are being borne by the community and converted it into dollar terms. And what they've come up with is that it essentially triples the price of our electricity that at the moment we are basically paying as a result of a community. So what is happening is, that the profit is personalized and the cost is being socialized. Now, if you want to talk about economics, let's talk economics. But let's have a level playing field. And if you talk it on a level playing field, we must include all the costs, including and especially the health costs. Because let's face it, our health is the most important thing. And it's the most important thing to everybody and to our children, and to, for example, have coal-fired power stations close to childcare centers is just completely crazy, so we must take that into account. We have done one study in Australia, only one by the ATSE that looked at coal burning and the costs of that, and what they found it costs about the Australian economy about two billion dollars alone in years from the coal-fired power stations. If you add on the greenhouse gases, they estimate to be about $10 billion to our economy alone. And that's not that's not factored in into any of the business models that, that we have, and it and it should be.
3: I think, can I just add to that? Um, when you talk about the economics of the health impact, it's important to think that the people who are gonna be most, most impacted by climate change and especially by uh, the health, uh, changes are, are people in poverty, uh, young people, and old people. And those are usually not the ones who are driving the economy and making those important economic decisions. So I think uh, that's part of the reason that the health impacts have been left out of those um, economic conversations.
1: Uh, I think it was only this morning uh, on the television. Uh, the figures are it costs the, uh, the economy $36 every time you turn up at the GP every time you turn up at the emergency ward, it's one and a half thousand dollars. So, what can we do to avoid people going Mm. to the emergency ward? What can we do to keep them out of hospital? And so, if we develop a health system that's um, proactive rather than reactive, so we look at more uh, on uh, healthy lifestyles and the promotion of staying healthy mm. rather than react to when someone turns up with a heart attack because they've been eating bad food all of their life. Then that is actually a much more economical health system to run.
0: Mm. And obviously this is something that your group spent some time thinking about, Ingo.
1: Uh,
2: well, all the time, basically. And, and particularly air pollution... Um, speaking on this subject, is actually probably the most biggest issue that we are facing. It is one of the really big killers in Australia as well. Um, We estimate we are losing about 3,200 lives every year from air pollution alone, Um, and that's obviously more than twice the national road toll. Um, A lot of it, of this air pollution, comes from our fossil fuel burning, some of it from other factors as well, but it is a huge cost to our society, Mm -hmm. and it must be factored in.
0: Okay, I've had about as much misery as I can take for an afternoon. Um, Let's look at mitigation, what we can do to really uh, try and turn things around at individual and and social levels. Humans are incredibly resilient. I mean, we've painted some fairly dire um, scenarios here this afternoon, but is it really something that we can't come through? I mean, humans or our recent ancestors have survived ice ages. Uh, Surely we can, you know, cop a bit of... Global catastrophic weather change um, as well. let's look at some of the things that it would take to really uh, improve the health outlook in the next in the next within the next century. I mean we started talking about um, about health systems are there other changes needed to health systems to really turn this stuff around uh, is the way that we're approaching health is the way we're educating doctors does that need to shift?
2: Yeah, I think overall the awareness still needs to increase generally speaking, overall. And I think this is why these meetings are so great, because with climate change being such an important, urgent medical emergency, um, we should be talking about it everywhere we go, at parties, at functions, at places like this. It is just a huge out a lot, issue. a Yeah, it? No. <laughs>
0: I see a little impact. Well,
2: do you know what's really funny? I, I always wanted to be an artist, right? Yeah. And I, and I failed miserably at this. I had a little studio in Germany. It went broke. Didn't work. And I became an anesthetist instead, which is a bit of a fine art in itself. But 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 now I'm an artist. Now that <laughs> now I talk about the depressing stuff. Aww. I've made it. Isn't that Aww, great? All so, things come yeah, to those who
0: wait tables. <laughs> yeah, <that's>
2: <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but no. But but just yes. Yeah, so the education of medical students. Our doctors need to be far more aware of what's happening out there. And doctors, nurses, health professionals, we all need to find a voice to speak on this most important issue, which is our health, which I think our society is expecting us to do, not just to treat patients in our own four walls, but to have a wider view on the, on the protecting health in general. Okay. Now, clean air, now moving clean air, Walking more, cycling more, you've heard all these before. But the really important point is there's a big co-benefit to that actually as well. And that means that when you walk more, when you cycle more, when you eat healthier food and clean water, you're going to improve your health as well and it's good for the environment. That's the beauty of it. So there is no better therapy, there's no better pill or prescription I can offer you that and works he won't as efficiently. I'm going to be prescribing this afternoon. I'm going okay, to be I know he's an anaesthetist. I'll be prescribing <laughs> right now. In fact, David, <laughs> um, no, to walk more, to cycle more, because it is the most single effective thing we can do to reduce depression, mental health. Um, myocardial infarction, stroke, and cancer as well. There's nothing more efficient that we can do but to prescribe that to our patients, and that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. And that's a massive core benefit, so what's good for the environment is ultimately also going to be good for our health.
0: So WOMAD 24-7 is the... uh... (laughs) I'm for that. Uh... Some
1: good news. You know, the fundamental shift is we need to go from a society concerned about our rights to a society where we're individuals concerned about our responsibilities. Uh, Ever since the Enlightenment, it's been our right to have as many kids as we want. It's been our right to accumulate as much wealth as we want, to have a big car, have a big house, etc., etc., etc. Now we need to actually say, well, actually, our responsibility is not to have large families. Is not to uh, have a uh, energy-dependent lifestyle, uh, particularly if that means fossil fuels. Uh, we have a responsibility to ourselves to, to, to remain healthy, to, to eat a, a more healthy diet.
0: That's that's a cultural shift that um, also has co-benefits because if we can pitch it as um, a community building and, you know, making people feel more involved, um, I don't know, is there any way that this is being done? Because I know that when we have people more engaged with their community, that also has health benefits. But... Is there anywhere that we know of where this kind of approach is actively being fostered outside of you know, small housing co-ops and things? Is there anywhere it's being done on a global scale or a bigger well,
1: scale? Well, uh, if you look at some of the European countries, um, for instance, uh, one of the greatest ironies uh, of a new, new economy uh, is Norway. Mm. Uh, and that is they've been able to build themselves a really forward-thinking, fresh-faced economy uh, based on the, the money they made out of uh, selling oil. Um, but because they managed their sovereign wealth, uh, even though it was oil, because they managed that sensibly, uh, they charged 78% uh, ro- royalties on that oil. We charged 13% for our iron ore. Mm. Now, they took that money and they built a, solv- a sovereign wealth fund. Every Norwegian. Has 186,000 kina locked away in an account for their future, and they're using that to invest in positive things. They will—they re- refuse to invest in uh, coal or in ca- carbon-based uh, energy, mm. uh, and that way, that they're able to, as a as a nation, tackle some of the uh, problems that face the planet.
0: And be interesting to see any health benefits that flow on from that in Norway down the track.
2: They're clearly documented already. You don't need to look very far. Um, that you are going to have a, a significant improvement in health.
0: Really, because when I was there, they were just a bunch of overweight drunks, really. Um, <laughs> okay. that, was, that was the fish and oil economy. Um, but they were really happy. Yeah. <laughs> They were not dissatisfied.
2: (laughs) But I think it's city by city. If we build it up, we don't need to have a huge grand plan and have everything in place. If we just provide every city with more cycleways, more walking, better public transport infrastructure, we'll get there. And that's where it comes to the community, to empower the community to say this is what we want.
3: Can I add to that as well, as we're developing cities, we need to think about developing them as green as we can, and there are co-benefits with health here as well. So using solar panels, um, using green walls and green roofs, uh, insulating our houses better so that we're not using air conditioning and heating uh, as much, and those have uh, co-benefits with health because they reduce the impacts of heat waves, um, and people, people die during heat waves, so we can protect ourselves that way too.
0: And in fact, there was a study that came out from Sydney Uni just this week, and it's the first time that um, instead of just looking at the impacts of heat on health someone actually considered humidity which I know I'm in Adelaide so no one's ever heard of humidity Uh, it's the sweaty uncomfortable side that often goes along with heat in other parts of the world Um, and when they looked at that the thing that uh, really humidity has this massive impact on not letting cities cool down at night so heat stroke after a few very uncomfortable sleepless nights and the thing that's going to make a difference to it is of course more greenways in the city so so, yeah, I guess it is the um, the co-benefit thing just being reinforced. Now, I'd like to get to your questions. Um, we have a microphone. There's a question over there. And um, if you could just um, be as brief as you can, because we only have we have got 20 minutes. So that's probably time for five questions. So please, no long comments, if you can help it, and we'll get your answers as soon as we can. Thank you. Thank you. So... Um The Greenland ice core data, when I had a good look at it, you can see that in the past the climate really has fluctuated a lot and it has been hotter than it is now. So with the population growing, I guess in the past, the way that human species has responded to that is by having fluctuations in the population size. So my question is, is population collapse
1: inevitable? Uh, Well, uh, first of all, I don't know how you read the Greenland ice cores because... uh well, they're, they're nowhere near as good as the Antarctic ice cores, and both of them don't show anything for the last 800,000 years in the temperature range that we're in at the moment. So we're in uncharted territory. Uh, do I see human population collapse? Being a paleontologist, it's going to happen one day. Uh, will it happen within our lifetimes? Possibly. Will it happen within a couple of generations? More likely. Will it happen within the next thousand years? Certainly collapse is inevitable for any species happy happy
3: can i add to that i think it's i think it is most likely in my opinion as a uh, epidemiology person most likely to occur because of infectious disease and we we have seen pandemics in the past we are going to see them again in the future and that's one way that uh, human populations regulate themselves is through through infectious disease Mm.
1: thank you it's been lovely uh talk today in this group it's all fairly obvious stuff probably for all of us, a couple hundred people here. How do we overcome the uh, sort of...
0: 780 people here for those listening at oh, home. Oh, that's good.
1: Several hundred, more than. How do we overcome the cancer on common sense in Canberra to actually do something and change things?
0: Oh, we have a volunteer to take that question. Ingo. Thank
2: you very much. Um, you know, there is so much money, so much heat in the... F- in the old way of doing things, both on an economic level as well as in our fossil fuel burning kind of society. Powerful companies with vested interests who have top guys to spread confusion and doubt to the rest of society. And I think here is another important tool that we have to empower us all, how we can change it. We don't have to wait for the politicians. We don't have to wait for the next um, next election. It's called divestment take your money out because you can object or try to do and be as green as you want if you got your money parked in your standard super fund and you deal with the big banks chances are a lot of your money is being invested into further development of fossil fuel projects fossil fuel burning and that's going to choke out the renewable and the green landscape that we really need so by pulling out your money from your super and putting it into other areas or so another super fund where it's more into renewable energy and away from the fossil fuel, you're doing a double whammy because you're not only taking the money out, but you're also putting it where it's being needed. It's an extremely powerful tool. It's something we can all do, and we can all do it right now and have a massive impact.
0: Uh, I- I, I'm Soon here temp- to be Mother Earth
3: has something to add to that. I'm here on a temporary visa so I can't complain about what happens in Canberra. But I would say from the other side, you can change things from the ground up instead of the top down. And that's part of the reason we've started Science in the Pub is because educating the the public about these types of issues and getting the science to them allows them to make more informed decisions.
1: And uh, this day and age, with the online environment, uh, a lot of communities are simply walking around Canberra. Totally. They're walking around the political structures and doing things. That's a, you know, look at this state. We've got uh, wind coming out of areas. <laughs> and that's <laughs> not uh. just Paul there's Willis. A, there's a mental image, <laughs> yeah. at the of top your one. Anyway, but but you know, we can actually uh, <laughs> yep. organise uh, ourselves these days, and we don't have to rely on the political structures.
0: Fantastic. I love some positive answers here. That's great. Yeah, over there.
3: Um, You've got the question, can human beings be well when the planet is sick? And I've been thinking, can the planet be well when human beings are sick? Because Paul brought up something very interesting before. He said we would have to get used to a much lower level of, of lifestyle. As a psychologist, I know how much of our thinking is dependent on the things that we rely on. This idea of addiction to having what we want when we want. Um, I just want to comment that goes in the opposite direction because, yes, we understand these can have effects on mental health, but I see people's addiction to wanting what they want when they want it as actually the core problem of the planet being sick.
0: And a wicked problem. Do we have any well, responses? Yeah. To and it? that
1: continues on from the, uh, the idea of we're, we're coming out of the age of individual rights to individual responsibilities, uh, if we are serious about having a long life for ourselves and for our kids and for our communities, then we've got to start, stop thinking about, it's my right to have whatever I want. It's your responsibility to do X, Y and Z to tread more lightly on the planet. To make those things happen, you know, the, the future of your kid uh, and your, your family is not no longer dependent on you going out and earning as much money as you can to send them to a great school. Uh, what it's more dependent on is living in a way that ensures that they are healthy, that their community is healthy, and that they, therefore they will have a future. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And the
2: two are really interconnected with each other, absolutely. So we can't have one without the other. And um, education is vitally important never said before speaking to each other at parties wherever you are at any function um, with your friends i think that's how you're going to be able to be bring about effective change in talking about exactly those things that you've said yeah, you yes ah, absolutely
0: yes. we're going out on radio to some more <laughs> of the converted and then and then but someone will pick it up in prison or but something hopefully i
2: do <laughs> you know that's where scientists Journalists, ecologists, doctors are all needed. Even, especially also, actually, our engineers. Um, and we, there's a group called Sustainable Engineers Australia, for example. We need to hear from those guys a lot more. We need, all need to find a louder voice
1: and keep speaking about it. Absolutely. This is going out of the Radio National audience, isn't it? Yep. Both of them? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, you're so funny now that you don't work for us anymore. <laughs> uh, yes, we have a question from a very patient audience member.
3: Thank you. I do believe that religion has a big influence on the population growth, and I just wondered what's your opinion to that, and what we can do about that. We all know that Catholic Church uh, thinks about or talks about contraception, or Islamic states, or Orthodox Jewish populations. Just wondered what you're thinking about that, and what we can do. I would say, again, you have to start with educating girls. You can be educated and religious as well and still make decisions about your own fertility. Um, So I'd say still start with the education.
0: And I would add that uh, it's very rare that advice from outside of a culture has a positive or uh, effective impact on any other culture. So um, whatever we can do to make the change or help support the change coming from within those cultures would be my suggestion.
2: And I think actually we can use the religious groups to our advantage in a sense that they, more than any other, have an ethical and a moral obligation to address this intergenerational injustice as well as the um, poor country injustice in terms of climate change. So if it's wrong to wreck the planet, it's wrong to profit from the wreckage of it. So speaking to our religious leaders and our religious groups about the impact it can make to not invest your money in companies and in activities that are ultimately going to be destructive to our planet and to our future generations, but to pull that money out is a really powerful tool we can use. So, again, using divestment with our religious groups, speaking to our religious leaders, will be really effective. If you
0: try and make that point a third time this afternoon, Ingo, (laughs) I'm going to pull the microphone away from you because we've got a limited time for questions. No, no, thank you. And we've got probably time for another three, so, yeah? Hi, Um, my question goes sort of somewhere we haven't really touched on I think today and that is that um, in times of human movement and also of natural disasters access to both preventive and um, treatment medications like for example contraception um, or um, ARVs uh, as a treatment for HIV becomes greatly limited and so that's not only an issue for population growth then as well um, but does the healthcare system have a role to play? I mean I'm tentative to go to the healthcare system rather go to the environment first, but do they have a role to play in, in that as well?
2: Hmm. Yeah, um, look, our healthcare system at the moment is not really equipped to deal with the impacts of climate change at all. I mean, certainly here in Australia, but I think that also applies to overseas as well. Um, there's a, a clear lack of awareness at the upper levels of the policy to factor climate change into account. And both adaptation and mitigation will and should play an important role when it comes to our healthcare system. So on one hand, we need to educate doctors, we need to have the emergency departments ready and adapt to the heat and the heat stress, the fires, the air pollution, that is going to be happening anyway. But on the other hand, we also need our health departments to speak out to our politicians, think about how to make better hospitals for the future, how to mitigate the climate change, Um, yeah.
0: And and perhaps a more community-based health...
2: More community-based awareness and health there as well, absolutely.
3: Yeah, this this is going to be a major problem, like you said, with the emigration of people, um, changing, you know, with drought and with changing food availability, we're going to see concentrations of people um, in areas that may not have the sanitation or the public health facilities to maintain those people. Uh, So we will see um, outbreaks of disease occurring, like we saw with Ebola. And that sort of response that we had... With Ebola, that was a global response. Um, is what we're going to have to focus on: is how can the whole world um, get together and and try to help these outbreaks of disease that will occur as we see uh, condensation of people coming together because of emigration. So it's it's a major problem, but we can try to take tackle it with a with global collaboration.
1: Just on a, a on a more general overview on that point is that you can look at the problems of climate change by uh, being a lot of people doing a little bit wrong, mostly unknowingly. Uh, Perhaps if everybody did a little bit right, knowingly, then we could turn things around. It probably is that simple. Mm -hmm. But then maybe I am oversimplifying it. Um,
0: Down the back.
3: Hi. um, Just um, talking about health... And considering the fact that genetically engineered crops haven't gone through randomised control trials and haven't been, you know, cl- declared to be safe and the other factor is that the majority of them are engineered to have a pesticide sprayed all over them or to have the fungicide, et cetera, in the actual crop... Do we really think that that is the, you know, the way of the future? Um, and, in fact, the advice is to people with allergies and gut problems to um, avoid genetically engineered food and have organic food. What does the panel think about that? Paul? Uh, the,
1: uh, the literature is pretty solid. Uh, genetically modified crops, uh, there's a huge variety of them. Many of them have been uh, have undergone extensive safety testings. Uh, problems have yet to be found with any genetically modified crop. Um, uh, No, that's actually the scientific literature. (laughs) Then uh, on top of that, uh, only some crops have been engineered to have pesticides or herbicides inserted in them. Uh, There are other simple genetic modifications such as uh, 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 engineering the plant to have broader leaves so that they... uh, shade out um, uh, competition plants and, and therefore grow more healthily. So I, I, the, the, the point is that genetic, mod, uh, genetic engineering offers us uh, a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card if we're going to feed t- uh, two billion people. Is there any way, Paul, an
0: organic diet, is there any way the planet could feed enough people um, if, if everyone were to switch to organic production? It's,
1: it's doubtful. Um, if, uh, if we were to uh, go to uh, purely organic uh, uh, agricultural systems, we'd need more than two Canadas to, uh, of arable land to feed the world.
0: Have we got a Canada?
1: No, no. <laughs> I-, I was using a Canada as the standard unit of arable land that we need <laughs> to feed two billion people. If you go to purely organic uh, processes, then you double that. Mm. We'd, we'd, we, don't, we just don't have the, t- uh, the time or the land to do that.
0: Thank you. And we still have time for one or more, two more questions. Somewhere down the front here.
1: Thank you. I wanted to ask uh, what the panel thinks about the importance of socialising the investment decision. For example, what I mean is that Gina Reinhardt, for example, operating her iron ore resources companies, reefs the iron ore out of the ground, sells it to China, and they use the coal that comes from Australia to make to make the steel and the the the, the uh, greenhouse Sorry, gases. Does this
0: at. question is it got a health um, yes, aspect yes, to
1: it? Yes, yes, yes. What I'm wanting to, to say is that the 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 private decision making is is having the social consequences of of um of health right across the country, right across the globe.
2: Do you want to respond to that? Well, I think Paul's already refer to that before by using Norway as an example of um, of um, socializing some of the profits that are being made. Look, we had the carbon tax for example. That was actually a really really good start. I'm sh- it certainly wasn't perfect but it was a great um, great way to get revenues in, um, to make the polluters pay, and then to be able to use that money. Some of the money has been channeled into renewable energy and actually created over 30,000 jobs that way. And now, of course, we've got that abolished again. But yes, we need, a, we need a mining tax, in my opinion. We need a carbon tax or something similar to that in order to get that balance right and to socialize some of the profits that we so desperately need.
3: Yes.
0: Um, we talked about less meat and again that's because uh, meat's a high uh, polluter and also use a lot of energy. But cereals also I understand are a real problem. Um, people are claiming that uh, we should be on a more paleo diet uh, with grains and less seeds be- um, because it causes a lot of inflammation in our body. So I think, and you know, obviously a lot of people are very overweight and, and very high on carbs uh, diet? Could, would you like to make a comment about that? You're the closest we've got to a doctor, Ingo. <laughs> 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 but I'm an anaesthetist. Well,
2: I'm <laughs> I'm 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 not sure if I can answer that really really properly. I, look, talking about meat. Um, overall it, it depends what meat you eat you see it gets a bit complicated there I, I can't you can't just put all meat in one basket and say all meat is bad for you um and also the effects it has on the climate change varies from meat to meat but we're talking about the ruminants especially the cows Um these they are huge problems there because they obviously produce a lot of methane um not just from the rumination process going on and the and the burping and the farting that they're doing, but also from the cow manure that sits in the sun and gets baked and releases actually a lot of nitrous oxide, which is three times as powerful, 300 times as powerful as carbon dioxide. On top of that, these animals need a lot of land to roam on and with the hoofs destroy a lot of the soil. And on top of that, again, a lot of space needs to be made, a lot of um, um, rainforests and other forests are being knocked down. So they're obviously very intensive.
0: Well, what is the health argument for eating less meat?
2: There are many. God, where do I start? Yeah. <laughs> Again, it depends what kind of meat you eat and how the meat and the animal is being farmed. But we have seen, you know, um, SARS and the outbreak of, um, of various kind of diseases related to the animals, um, clearly linked to the viruses because of very dense animal husbandry. So a lot of virus outbreaks that we are seeing are as a result of the way we are rearing High-intensive meat production culture, which is also extremely cruel to the animals, but apart from that that's one. The other one's antibiotics. Most of our antibiotic resistances that we have come from the animal and food industry sector not from the hospitals, at least not here in Australia, not from the hospitals, but from the animal food industry sector because they're giving them to all the animals vancomycin that then end up in highly resistant antibacteria that we see our patients in the hospital where they then spread even more. So that's another huge problem. Growth hormone is another problem that I don't have time to get into. But there are many arguments. So nothing wrong with a lean chicken or a lean piece of... Um, Fish, as far as I'm concerned, can be quite healthy, but also if you burn your food and you burn your meat, you're going to have a highly carcinogenic, toxic um, cocktail there that's increasing your risk of cancer, especially prostate and colon cancer. And we are seeing a high increase in those cancers as a result of a highly red meat-based diet.
0: And that's an answer he didn't know much about. So uh, <laughs> let's wait till we get him rolling on his actual area of expertise. I think we have time for one more quick question if someone has one ready to go. Otherwise, I'm just going to throw to the panel and someone's just whispered two minutes, Bernie, so I'm going to throw to the panel to leave us um, with something, something to really uh, hold that we can work towards, I guess. Considering the changes that we're facing, some of which are imminent, some of which can't be avoided, what, as individuals, what is a healthy lifestyle going to look like in 30 years' time? So when we're all a little bit older, what's a healthy lifestyle going to look like, uh, just so that we can start working towards it right now?
1: Uh, It's going to involve uh, dietary changes, so that we eat less red meat, uh, we eat uh, more fruit and veg. Um, that's just common sense. It's going to mean uh, a lifestyle change in getting out and doing more exercise. Uh, as Ingar said, uh, just uh, walking and, uh, and, and bike riding uh, is enough to uh, trigger great benefits. But also, from a community health point of view, we're going to see more sustainable energy uh, and more localised energy. So rather than plugging into a transmission grid you're going to have photo, uh, photovoltaics on your roof, uh, wind ge- local wind generators, and that sort of thing to really lighten our carbon footprint.
0: Emily. Um,
3: Yeah, I I think uh, we talked a bit about diet and we talked about exercise. Those are two of the main ones. Um, So let me talk a little bit about mosquito-borne disease, things that we can do to keep ourselves healthy there. Um, Increase the amount of surveillance for all diseases, not just mosquito-borne ones, so that we know where they are, uh, when they're there, and why they're arising, and that'll help us prevent them in the future. Um, Increasing our public health infrastructure so that we can tackle those diseases when they do have outbreaks. Um, and then doing things on an individual level to prevent mosquito-borne disease in your own backyard and neighbourhood, uh, reducing, you know, the amount of water that accumulates in uh, your pot plants, uh, cleaning out your gutters, that sort of thing, and making sure we don't have mosquitoes breeding.
0: And clearly not getting around in midriff tops and short sleeves at sunset when mosquitoes are at their most active...
3: That is good advice. Sound yeah. advice. <laughs> Thanks, Mom.
0: <laughs> Inge, grandma soon. Uh, Ingo.
2: Yeah, I, I basically what has said, um, and green cities um, having a lot of cycleways, a lot more electricity based on, on solar cells, a lot more windmills, um, wind turbine syndrome does not exist. Sorry, guys. And if it does, it only does so in Australia, apparently. I mean, what's going on with this? We have them in Europe... <laughs> On every bloody street corner just above. And
0: no-one's sick there. (laughs) Um, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, before I wrap up and and thank everyone on the panel, I will just add one last thing. As someone who's um, uh, one of many Australians who's dealt with mental health issues in my lifetime, another thing we can do to ensure that side of our health is to uh, cut back on our work life a little bit, get the work-life balance right, get more engaged with our loved ones and community, and we'll all be feeling a hell of a lot better damn soon. Please join me in thanking our spectacular panel this afternoon. Paul Willis, Emily Johnston, Ingo Weber, and I'm Bernie Hobbs. You've been terrific. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing some of you at the next
2: panel. Cheers. Thank you.